Uh, hi, this is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance, and this is Podcast 21. Uh, and with me from Los Angeles, um, again, I'm glad to say, is Guy Zimmerman. Hi, Guy. John, how's it going? How are you? I'm good, man. What's, um, what's going on? Yeah, you know, we I mean, strange times, you know. Oh, my uh, God. Oh, it's, Jesus. Yeah, it's... Um, it's it's extraordinary and and we'll get into a little of that um but um i wanted to talk about uh chris rossi and i did this thing the other day and at the end sort of as a as a sidebar i was mentioning why i thought certain tv series certain films uh, were successful and others were not. And part of it was having an actor or actress who like carried the show, which is the vernacular, right? And yeah. uh, what what constituted that? And so it got me thinking afterwards because we didn't get into it much. Um, what what I mean by that, what is, you know, this is, this is, we've, we've suggested before that we should talk about acting. So, so let's do that a little. Um, and, and I'll only begin by saying, uh, I used to maintain that great actors were the ones who could listen the best, the most intensely, the most thoroughly, the most sensitively. Um, and that that listening then triggered a set of other things that happen. Um, and I still think that, but I would add to that, that there's something else um, uh, about, about an actor giving to other actors, because you hear actors say that, oh, you know, this actor gives you a lot when you're out there with him, or this actress gives you a lot when you're out there with him. And um, I think it would be interesting because I think I know what they mean, but it would be interesting to talk about yeah, it's, what it's, that is. Right. I mean, I, I always think that this is one of the, one of the unique features of, of um, producing, creating, developing, whatever, you, however you want to say it, creating theater in Los Angeles, especially for a writer, is that you, you have this unmediated connection to actors whereas usually that connection is mediated by directors and producers and the whole apparatus of production that that actually is, is deeply political and does certain things to what can happen and i think um so we get closer to the very strange thing that happens with actors on stage with a text and it is really quite this remarkable and very, very misunderstood thing that, that really, you know, you have to remember how far back it goes that, you know, the you know, Western philosophy in general arose out of an opposition in a way to the, the, the mimetic activity of what, you know, what was happening in, 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 in Greek culture at the time that had to do right, with right. theater, the birth of theater. There's always this, but really centered around the difference between the apparent and the real. That 
was mm -hmm. always linked to actors, you know, performing, which was this new thing that people were doing. And then I think of, I know we also wanted to talk about Gilles Deleuze. Yeah. yeah. And, and difference in repetition. And, you know, the thing that's always remarkable to me is the way that acting requires, you know, acting is especially the kind of acting that we like that's so rooted in a kind of uncertainty on the part of the actor, a confrontation with the openness and then, you know, right, also right. The text as this framework. And, you know, it's, it requires what I think of in De Deleuzean terms as real thought, meaning, you know, for Deleuze, you know, real thought is linked to this art, our toe concept of stupidity of, <laughs> you know, what Beckett called betis, which is, you know, this animal stupidity, you know, and, and our toe, which I think Deleuze liked the statement that, that real thinking is, is the hardest thing there is, but it's, it's what I see actors actually doing. And of course, one of the things that you just touched on that's so remarkable is that it is by definition, you know, a, um, a non-individuated activity. In other words, it really is about this connection between actors on stage, actors on stage and the audience, actors on stage and the text. It's, it's a distributed activity, you know, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, no, I think that's, no, I mean, I think that's absolutely right and, and interesting. Um, you know the repetition part is is crucial, and I I had not gotten to um, repetition and difference, or is it difference and repetition um, by Deleuze until very recently, and and it's a remarkable text for for theater. It is um, in yeah. terms of theater, and and he kind of is inverting Freud a little bit, but. Um, but what he is suggesting in terms of a, a theatrical practice, a discipline or something, is that is that we learn, we live, we feel through repetition. And certainly on stage, we do that. So that empathic presence that one actor has with another actor this giving and see i think the giving comes out of listening as well right and and that that empathic connection can only exist through through this this constant repetition of things through rehearsal through through memorization and uh and it's it's a but there you know there are within that curious paradoxes right and and kind of subtle contradictions but i think basically um that's you know that's that's true and if you hear this noise i'm i'm wiping the snot off my nose um anyway uh the 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 listening is because we know actors who don't do that sort of selfish actors and and other actors will always complain about them and they don't listen and they're they don't give and they're concerned entirely with this presentation of themselves um and they're 
invariably not in the play. Uh, and then the opposite are actors who who kind of disappear into the play, in a sense, into their character, into that text. Um, I mean, Lee Kissman, we both love. And, and I remember what struck me about Lee early on was that, that he listened so intently, so with such focus. And, um, but I think when we're talking about film and TV, some of that is harder to pick up, obviously. The camera's not on characters who are not talking, for one thing, usually. Uh, and and um, it's, so it becomes something else. There, there's something else. And, and I was watching the new HBO show, Perry Mason. And it's actually not very good, but it doesn't matter. But Matthew Reese uh, is one of those kind of actors. And it, it's partly a, and this was Chris Rossi's suggestion, which I think is right. It's partly a kind of relaxation. I mean, it's bodily. And yeah, and that's the Betise. That's the Betise part, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, this is more intent, um, more intense in person in live theater and it's more disruptive it's more frightening that kind of um you know empathic presence and and um uh the, uh, that's the word i'm looking for um the, the that empathic presence and closeness and connection that you get in live theater between the audience and what's on stage, which is the, the product of constant repetition. I think that that's extraordinarily disruptive to the status quo in a sense. I mean, it's frightening. And we're living in a society that's, you know, repressing feelings uh, more and more. And I mean, the COVID thing is a kind of perfect example because people are putting on masks, they're social distancing, they're doing everything, you know, and you can't go to live theater. I mean, it's Oliver Cromwell again, um, undercover of risk management, that doesn't matter. But, but in terms of the art form, it's not possible, obviously, you know, so we do what we can with with radio theater and things like that. But um, I think I think that there is an enormous power in in that that triangle of listening, um, giving, uh, and relaxation somehow, for lack of a better word. Well, it's the. I mean, I, you're right. I mean, I think it's it's something that comes up out of the body, which is this, you know, out of out of the out of the material body. You know, it's. I mean, you know, it's. In a way, it's that thought is finally material. It's not this platonic thing that floats above the world in some abstract <laughs> realm, right? I mean, but those those oppositions are very real, meaning, yeah, you know, and it's very real in 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 Western culture. You know, that basic opposition between thought as abstraction and thought as something embodied and active on on a material level. You know, and that is exactly where, uh, you know, where Deleuze positions his thought, you know, and it's post Nietzsche, it's post, but it's interesting, John, because it's also, you know, he's a Marxist too, Deleuze. Right. I mean, to the right. end, the, you know, and in, in a way you can look at, you can, 
you can look at Deleuze as a reconciliation of, of Marx and Nietzsche, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah, I mean, that, that particular book is, is an absolute um, treasure for, for theater. I mean, I, I riffed off of it for theater artists, theater theoreticians. Um, I, I was, you know, just kind of borrowing randomly almost um, the other day when I did this blog yeah, post because I, it's, I it's, it's really rich for, you know, it, it's so applicable to, to this idea of, of artistic practice. I mean, not just theater, but it is, it is very um, relevant to, to how we think about theater because acting, and I, I'm always kind of talking about this. I mean, acting is um, this enigma it is all of these things and it's not all of these things. You know, you know it's, it's, it's very interesting because I, I remember my ears pricked up once talking to John O'Keefe and he said <laughs> something about your work. He said, well, you know, John reminded us of the actor. And I, and I, it, it, I didn't get much more out of the exchange, but um, <laughs> as you can imagine, but, but I understood what I understood what he what he meant, and it made me think that what had happened for you at the start of your, you know, of your of your playwriting is that you were doing it in this context of like what one of the things that you were attending to was like, you know, what can Lee do? What can I have right. Lee do? What can I have Beth Rusha do? What can I have Rick Dean do? That would right. be interesting, you know, and that. Again, it was the it was a product of this primary connection between you know a poetic sensibility in the writer and a capacity in the actor, a capacity for real thought. In, yeah, in the actor, in the actor, which can only you know real thought, which can only happen on stage, ironically. And this yeah. is where you know, I mean, Murray gets close to this often, and and this is of course Murray Mednick, which is part of what the whole essence of the Padua Hills Festival was, which was that theater can be anywhere. It can be, you know, everywhere is a stage potentially for real right. thought that requires these elements. Um, yeah, and I think that's what part of what the enigma is, um, is that, you know, yeah, theater can happen anywhere, anywhere can be a stage, but as soon as it becomes a stage, it ceases being anywhere, you know, and then <laughs> yeah, it's somewhere. That's true, right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so it's like the creation of a place. Well, and that's right. extraordinarily powerful. All right, my friend. all right, listen, this is where we have to get into this Deleuze. I mean, sorry, let me, let me know if there's too much Deleuze in this discussion. No, 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 we, please. But, but this is where we have to get into the nature of the virtual for Deleuze, because you know, for Deleuze, the, the virtual is a realm that is that is part of the real, but it's not actual. And it's a it's an absolutely radical concept. You know, you you say if you look at, you know, it's linked to the concept of capacities versus properties, right? Where mm -hmm. you could say, you know, if I'm going to list the properties of a knife, this is an example. Manuel Delanda always uses, you know, if I, if I want to list the properties of a knife, a kitchen knife, you know, I can do it. It's this long, it weighs this much, it's got these properties. 
And that's it. You can do it exhaustively, but capacities is something else, you know, for to list the capacities of a knife is impossible because you, you know, you can use it, it involves, there's all sorts of things about capacities, you know, that right. is the capacity to affect and be effective. So a, a knife can cut something. It can pin a note to a door, which is another Delanda thing. <laughs> uh, it can be used to throw at somebody. You can't list it exhaustively. And yet those capacities are real, but not actual, even when the knife is resting in the drawer. And this is right. something that I always, that's and because they're virtual. They're virtual. And this is something that I, you know, so what Deleuze does is sort of broaden the domain of the real. And yeah, so suddenly, you know, you, and I bring this up with students when I'm teaching a lot, which is like, okay, so the interesting question is to ask yourself, you know, what are your capacities? And then you see the politics of it, because of course, you know, the, 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 the realm of state domination or, or, you know, whatever is always trying to reduce you to your, your properties. You are this and this, this is your number. This is how, this is your role and things. This is, whereas your capacities are, you know, you have infinite, every, every one of us has infinite capacities right. and they're real, but not actual. And they, you know, they're, they're a part of the real. And then it, it has this political thing. And of course, it's extremely theatrical, too, because when you think about, you know, the capacity of theater to be everywhere, it's it, this is the truth of the actor. They right. are they are exploring a capacity to become or to be Richard III or, you know, a character in a John Stepling play. And it is real. It's yeah. just not actual. So, you know, do you see what I'm saying? I mean, yeah, no, no, here. this is, it's extraordinary. And, and because I'm thinking, you know, there is this, just to go back to, you know, the idea that, um, I mean, I used to say half jokingly that um, the first theater of cavemen sat around telling each other stories and one day in a circle or something, you know, by the fire, one day one of them stepped away and walked over and started acting out and everybody turned and watched him. Suddenly there was an audience and he started doing something. Suddenly there was a play, right? Well, maybe it was a, a sermon. I don't know, but probably it was a play. But it was this invention of place somehow and and this is, you know, Bly said this thing, and I've quoted it before, that all learning takes place in ritual space. And, and I think that's true, basically. Um, and so you're, you're inventing, you're creating a place, you're taking this space and creating a place, and that place by the nature of this multifaceted complex discipline that's connected to language and text most profoundly, you are correct, uh, creating a, a, a ceremony, a ritual of some sort. And I think that, that therefore the actor becomes a sort of <laughs> vessel for um, something learned, something that can only be learned in um, uh, the, the kind of ephemeral, transitory, but extraordinarily real 
uh, ceremonial space of theater. And then when you layer on top of that, the idea that these actors in, in, you know, are speaking memorized lines, it becomes, it becomes even more, it's, you know, then it becomes really a complicated discussion. And I think that's why improvisation is always so bad, you know, always lacks these dimensions and is not enigmatic once actors are allowed to stop remembering their lines and coming up with some, doing this other thing, which it, admittedly, I suppose is a skill. I don't find it interesting, but, but that's me, but it's, but it's, but it's disconnected from a history of a practice that, that is tied into, into remembering. Well, it's, in, yeah, well, and it's, it's, it's detached from the ceremonial for sure when that happens, it, it, it drops the ceremonial dimension. But it's very interesting because to me, there's also this, this subtle distinction between, you know, in, in some ways I would say the ceremonial dimension of theater, which is what redeems it for you and I right. from what, you know, what, um, uh, you know, what might be called or what, what has been called the deadly theater right right um which is you know the banality of melodrama or whatever that um peter brook talks about right and so yeah. you know the ceremonial dimension is what redeems the entire art form for me i just said no you know people have been talking about it, and i don't want to digress on this but like yeah you know hamilton you know it's like <laughs> you know no for me no. Uh, no you know profoundly no it's trivial and i'm not interested you know and it's i mean whatever the value of it is as a cultural phenomenon i don't i don't have a problem with but like no it's not something that i i find right of, of any kind of urgent interest at all whereas when i see um that ceremonial dimension that is so miss so absented so so absent from our life i feel an urgent connection to it you know yeah. and, I'll, and i'll go to bat for it you know because it's it feels to be so important right and i think so, it is and i think the problem one of the problems myriad problems that we have in this society with contemporary criticism being what it is is that we have no critics trained to have this kind of discussion, frankly. Uh, so they look at things in, in terms of, well, what kind of effect was produced? Did people laugh? Were they happy leaving the theater? Are they going to go buy the cast album? I don't know um, what things exist in this world that I'm pretty thoroughly disconnected from. But I know that great theater the 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 structure of the storytelling see the paradox for me is that storytelling is both incredibly important and completely irrelevant right at the same time in equal measure and and it's very hard to talk about because on the one hand that text there has to be a story that's being told but the importance of the experience it doesn't matter to me at all if the story is even finished as long as these other things are taking place. 
which is this magic empathic transference, the creation well, it's of even, a ceremonial uh, space, right. et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, I, well, I think it's even more pointed than that in the sense that you absolutely need, you know, the, the narrative, the, the narrative tendency, which is, which is really, you know, hardwired into us. It's about, yep. it, it's the predictive dimension of cognition where I want to find out what the pattern of development is here. What, what are the causal laws that govern what can happen so I can get ahead of danger and maximize, you know, pleasure or whatever. I mean, it's, it's part of this sort of individuated, you know, it's in Deleuzean terms, it's under the sign of identity where, yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. all, and it's, it's about the, you know, the exchange economy. So, you know, story or narrative, is a strong tendency that if you're a playwright, you naturally want to deploy as a part of what it means to hold an audience and attract an audience and engage an audience. And in fact, engage the, you know, the, um, the faculties in an audience that you actually want to completely deconstruct. <laughs> you know, you, you yeah. want to disassemble that tendency toward narrative, which is, of course, you know, the, the essence of fascism. You know, fascism is the story that, you know, somebody without a story and who's, who's drowning in uncertainty and, un, and un, unable to process un, the uncertainty of existence. Right. The ambiguity no, see, that's all is, around this, us. And suddenly someone comes along and says, oh, wait a minute, here, you, you can play this, you know, this is the story and you're playing a role in it. Look, you're, an, you're not just a border guard. You're an important role in the future of, uh, you know, something great called America. So suddenly you have an orientation and, and you're tremendously grateful and you'll do anything for that because it relieves you of what's most terrifying. And this is why this is the theatrical dimension of fascism. Right. Absolutely. And I think this is incredibly important. Um, and back to repetition in relation to what you just said, because I think that's true and it's important. And the 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 victor klemper is that his name wrote the book about nazi propaganda he was a nazi propagandist as i recall anyway but the book the is name. extraordinary and he he has descriptions that sound exactly like contemporary america right i mean exactly and this is one of the secrets on one level of of the donald trump phenomenon but it was of the george bush as well, and really of, of Clinton, Obama was a kind of outlier in this sense, but is that you just keep repeating the, the same bullshit, the same, the same propaganda. You just keep saying it over and over and over and over and over and over and over. You say it 5,000 times. The dissenting voice says it three times that maybe a few people heard about. So it's just the creation of this. I mean, that's what indoctrination is and that's fascistic. And the, the story then is linked into this other register of, of repetition. And this is where it gets, you know, complicated and subtle in a sense, because it's, and I think this is, I think this is hugely destructive, in fact, in, in the contemporary world and is, is one of the perhaps intentional, perhaps not intentional 
byproducts of 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 a highly marketed oh, system sure. of reality oh, for sure. right oh for that, sure yeah and that they 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 are going to repeat this certain thing over and over and over and over and they're going to tell you this certain myth over and over and over and over and over and they're going to work you know really hard um to to stop people from from even being aware of 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 alternatives to this kind of process so yeah i mean i mean you know so but you know it's it's also true that you know every advertiser knows that it takes about 10 seconds to hook someone into a story you know every advertisement is a little story a little narrative with a hook that says you know buy this and you'll you'll feel better about your life (laughs) you'll be playing a role in the world instead of being a lump of uh, of uncertainty and ambiguity, you know, and this is, of course, the, you know, the opposite of various awareness practices in spirituality where you yeah, so it's, turn so it's, and say, you turn and say, you actually can learn to deal with that uncertainty and it's actually the source of rich experience and it's, you know, so stop trying to push it away and engage with it, right? Well, it's, it's also, it's strange. It's also like, the marketing wing of you know everything is aware of this kind of repetition we have to get the message across repeat 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 and it bears superficial similarities to the kind of repetition we're talking about with with memorization and rehearsal and any kind of empathic mimetic awareness it's a different kind of thing but it has come to stand in for the real thing in a way. Well, and this is, but this is the crucial, you know, this is the crucial distinction, of course. You know, like if you or I went to, if, if I find myself going to what many people think of as a good play, within 30 seconds, I am hyperventilating and looking for the exits because I'm, <laughs> I, I, am, I am being, right? As opposed yes. to- as opposed to, you know, the, the sort of post Beckettian work that appeals, you know, where you, you suddenly feel like some fundamental in the withholding of certainty, in the, you know, the embrace of, you know, the embrace, like the promise of clarity, but the withholding of certainty and the, yeah. and, and like helping me collectively in a group of people acclimatize it but you know reconnect to the fundamental uh you know uncertainty of existence which is another name for that is uh freedom then uh freedom from conceptual frameworks and 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 you know reductive maps of experience that are extractive and manipulative in the collective experience of that freedom i am suddenly in where you know where i want to be and i i uh you know i remember seeing sarah kane's play uh 448 psychosis yeah uh right on the eve of george bush's re-election which was a very dark night and i i i had this you know tremendous uh experience of like uh, i left the theater afterwards feeling uh you know tremendously uh empowered again by 
that experience, you know, and it was just a reminder sure. of the politics of that theater, right? Of the kind of theater that we're drawn to. Let me make one other point though, which is that like if I go to see a Richard Foreman play and I love Richard Foreman, but you know, the, the problem I have with that aesthetic, of course, is that it doesn't trigger the, um, the part of me that wants the easy answer of the story in order to deconstruct it. Like it never gets to that point. It says, here's just direct experience of something else. Yeah. And I love that, but it's not doing the thing of stripping away this reptilian dimension of my, you know, brainstem that has to do with. Uh, no, and that's, that's very interesting because I have, I, I, and I'm glad you said it because I have this, I love Foreman too. And I, and that's not, that's not, lip service or anything i mean he i think he's really important and the interesting thing is my favorite piece of foreman theater was when he directed a botho strauss play yeah well there you go well, with richard go. jordan at, yeah. at the new york public um was extraordinary i mean you know is one of the seminal experiences of my life in theater um because to see his theatrical intelligence applied to this other thing. Yes. That we're trying to, was amazing. Yes, for sure. So yeah, it's, it's hard. It's complicated. And um, it, it, there is, there is also something I think, um, you know, the repetition that, cause I always, I think Zemo, is that his name? The great no, um, author. Yes, and, and I know S-E-A-M-O. He has talks about repetition at some point, I know, as right. I remember. But um, the kind of repetition that, for example, takes place in No, or takes place in, in you know, certain kinds of theater that, that we like, and and even in, in, um, in Shakespeare, there is this... Um, this repetition is, like they say in chess, it's forced. Um, you have to do that, you know, you, you, otherwise you're not even playing chess anymore. You're doing something else. So, so certain things are forced. There's a kind of respect for a certain kind of repetition that has to take place or, or you're doing something else. You're making chocolate chip cookies. I don't know. But this forced um, practice is is also tied in with, with a kind of patience and um, listening and seeing, right? I mean, well, and these are the things that get short-circuited in the fascist repetition that we're referring right. to. Yes, because... Because there's blindness and deafness involved in those. Right. You know, it's, you know, in a sense, I want to say what happens in that repetition is that you get closer and closer to that's how you can get closer in a public way to being right. But yeah. again, if you're looking at Deleuze, there's, you know, the, you know, the, the tremendous irony is that what you find in being is difference. You don't find identity. You don't find, you know, you, you know, in other words, there's a reason why you can only get to that place through um, 
through the, the differential action of the actor. Right. That's you know, it. I mean, it, it, it's, yeah. it's, you know, it's, a, it's, yeah, it's a, really hard, man. It's hard <laughs> to talk about. Well, it but is. That, yeah, but but of course, good. the differential <laughs> action is good. No, but I get, I see, I know exactly what we're talking about. And, and language is, is hard, you know, it's a naughty, it's a naughty problem. Well, and we can only point to it in a discussion like this, right? Yeah. But if you, if yeah. you see, you know, I remember some of the work we did with someone like John Horn and you're yeah. like, you know, John Horn offstage is something fundamentally different from John Horn on stage. And you know that you're seeing something much, much, you know, of greater magnitude on stage right yeah i mean he moves he would and, and this is true for any i would for god's sake rick dean uh, of all actors yeah know? like suddenly you're you're in the presence of somebody with real magnitude whereas off stage rick was tormented by you know all right. these reductive well rick was the great paradox you know because um because it was almost that degree of magnitude, that strange instinctive integrity that he had on stage at his best yes. anyway. Yes. Um, um, seemed almost um, impossible without the, the torment offstage somehow. The they were function yeah. offstage. They, well, they, you know, the, they, there was an in, inverse relationship between his integrity on stage and his complete lack a lack of integrity <laughs> <on stage. laughs> yeah sadly you know, his you know his his and he was apologetic about his utter lack of integrity yeah on stage. well you know people used to people used to come to me a lot because rick at his best he was he was really well behaved with me compared to some i know somehow you had but, that but you know people would say to me how do you put up with that isn't that a pain in the ass i said yeah but but do you see what happens at the end? You know, do you, well, he was well behaved. He to was me, well behaved with you. Yeah. yeah is, is worth it. Yeah. It's just for worth sure. it at the end of Storyland, you know. Oh, for sure. This extraordinary sweeping bow or whatever it was. I don't know anybody else. I mean, it was it was one of the greatest things I've ever taken part in creating, you know. No, it was totally singular would be so yeah. yeah so i you know yeah but but i think it's also um okay you know it, it's interesting because there are just john let me just of, make a point let me just make a yeah, point there please please there is no other theater milieu in which it would be possible for you in collaboration with rick dean to uncover that final bow and its artistic merit, except fucking Los Angeles, where you have people like Rick Dean, this, you know, this, <laughs> this film star in the Philippines and Peru, you know, yeah. who is available to do the theater of someone like you. I mean, I don't know. It's just so extraordinary, right? Yeah. It's, it's well, it. but this was the great, um, the great importance of Padua. Yes, know? yes. I mean, it just was. And, well, as and, a completion of the off-off-Broadway movement, yeah, I think, yeah. through Murray's, you know... But, you know, there, there was... I mean, there are a lot of different pathways 
toward you know finding this thing that we're 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 circling around and pointing towards i mean there are it it, it there there's just so many paradoxes i mean um the the actors i know who i really value are often um not very articulate about what they're doing you know it's operative on a on an instinctual level um and and maybe some of that giving um that connection uh that that you see in in certain actors um is is you can't be the product of of a of a of a instrumental analysis you know it's just it's just not it's it's something else but but it requires a, a some sort of foundation in in you know a spiritual practice of some sort a creative for lack of a better word you know a, a creative spiritual practice that that allows you the preconditions to to stumble out there and as Arto said you know be naked and terrified um and never more yourself yeah and gesture um, through the flames yeah and and so it's you know it's the repetition part is so funny because you know repetition and Deleuze doesn't deny this even if he inverts um freud a little and i hadn't realized how much deleuze and guattari um had had considered jung which is really interesting oh, but anyway oh, yeah oh for sure i mean you know the, um, and, and in yeah and bergson yeah and so you have this repetition that is still tied somehow to trauma right because for Absolutely. freud we're going to try to you know <laughs> we're going to try to do it this time um without you know with a different result except that's not really what we believe but that's what we tell ourselves well and, uh, and that's kind of this compulsive quality well that, right you know dude yeah and uh, so you know what 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 you are dealing with as a director and then as a playwright as well you are dealing with a stage space in which these extraordinarily powerful forces are potentially going to be opened up, you know, compulsion and, and trauma, trauma and for personal, sure. you know, fear and terror and nakedness right. and, 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 and yet a deconstructing it, of identity. So, right. Yeah. And yet it, right. Which, and that deconstruction of identity has tremendous transformative capacity vis-a-vis -vis the culture as a whole. And of right. course, the culture as a whole wants nothing less than any kind of transformation, right? Because, you know, and it's very, it's very interesting. And so that's why the whole theater apparatus is actually devoted to preventing that, what you just described, from ever happening on a stage. You know, the whole Mark Taper Forum, blah, blah, blah. Uh, right. Even, you know, that exists in order to prevent what you just described from happening. Absolutely. And it's no, I mean, the issue of and the issue of trauma is very interesting, right? Because you know, Deleuze and Guattari also this is of course the cornerstone of their whole you know schizoanalytical uh, rejection of Freud is that at the at the core of every identity is a moment of psychosis right. that actually mints the identity. So 
And this is, of course, something that anyone who has ever taken psilocybin or LSD or peyote or whatever, this is, a, this is something everyone understands if you've taken one of those substances that's right. so, you know, that right. figures so prominently in, in the development of the human, really, secretly, is that yeah. you understand what it means to go back into that place of quote-unquote psychosis, which is freedom, in a way. And that psychosis vis-a-vis -vis hallucinogens is always, or, or certainly the vast majority of times, is tied into um, a sense of wearing a mask and a false identity. Absolutely, and absolutely. Suddenly, suddenly you are self, you are aware of your own mask and it's terrifying, you know. Absolutely, um, right. You, and you've ripped away your own mask. And right. you look behind it and it's like, whoa. Yeah. But of course, it's also extremely vital. And most cultures, you know, that are, that are less destructive have always maintained one, you know, access to that place through the ceremonial. It's very interesting. It's very interesting. And, and I just, you know, I think that what, just to kind of slide back a little bit to where we began, what's interesting is is that we, no matter how much a system, a corporate system of, of kitsch and junk and commercials and, and the spectacle being reproduced and all of this stuff, false consciousness being, you know, hoisted up before us all the time, there is still the residue of the truth, right? So that I don't know, The Sopranos, which pretty much was junk, but the reason it was sometimes not junk was that Gandolfini was one of those actors. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and sometimes you went, aha, <laughs> you know, it was a moment. Yeah, a, mo a radical moment, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and so it's it's it seems somehow on one level that that it's, it's very hard to completely eradicate, but they certainly seem, you know, they, the system certainly seems currently pretty intent well, on, on trying. Well, this know. is, well, and, and of course, if you, if you want to step back, if you step back far enough and you say, well, you know, you have to look at, you know, it, it really is this sort of um, battle between identity and difference, finally. And which is going to emerge, you know, so if, if you look at that, you say, well, you know, one of the tremendous forces of identity as a primary quality is the exchange economy. And this is where you reconnect to Marx. And yeah. you say, you know, a coin, this is my whole, you know, theoretical sort of uh, hobby horse, which is, you know, <laughs> that, that the coin is actually a little identity machine you know that it has difference on one side and identity on the other and it's meant to encompass one in the other so that identity emerges always as primary and that if you you know if you look at the the birth of coinage in ancient greece and a couple of other places at around the same time and you look at uh you know philosophies of um identity that begin and that propagate forward with ideas of um sovereign power state power what and and how that organizes humans 
society. You know, this is where, you know, for example, we, you and I talked about Ann Carson. That's exactly the, the, the transition she described. Yeah. Know, moving from yeah, a that game. book is amazing. I mean, it's yeah. amazing because she really does um, find a, a way to articulate this thing we're talking about um, in a, in a, you know, in this beautiful but way in a, right. about poetics, you know? Right. But in, in a certain way, the, as you point out, it's not clear to me, it's never clear to me, and of course I have a, also kind of a Buddhist take on this, which is, adds a whole other kind of wrinkle to it, but it's, you know, it's far from clear where things end up finally, and that there are these traces, and sometimes they're very important traces, of this other truth. Right. This underlying truth, you know. Well, yeah, and and this is um, this brings up the. I mean, because what troubles me as, say, a playwright, an artist, a writer, whatever I am, director, what troubles me is, um, and you know, we've mentioned before. I've mentioned many times. Well, the problem is there's no audience for you know. We have to educate an audience, all of which is true but it's but it's but it's not exactly that it's it's the i mean it is but it, that doesn't go far enough what what we're talking about is a a society that is so amnesic now that um, well let me let me you know it's very go ahead please you know. have you have you been watching it's not so so good really but it's interesting is the the loudest voice have you been watching that piece about roger ailes with um with, with what's his name um, no no <laughs> well it's 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 interesting you know with russell crowe playing roger ailes and it's just i mean it's interesting on the level if nothing else of the level of history Right, and and yeah. we have to remember, historically speaking, right? We're we're living at the at the end, at the tail end, of the neoliberal experiment, which was this radical experiment in reductive thought, and a complete surrender to capital, to identity, to you know complete self alienation through yeah. See, the entrepreneurial self. All this bullshit that has been forced down everyone's throat through propaganda yep. of the Fox News variety, but of course it's present in all the other venues yep. anyway, and it's present everywhere in the market economy. And it's been forced down our throats for 50 years and it has achieved this remarkable state of unreality. And it is and, and, and it is desperate now because it is being revealed as being complete fucking bullshit. Well, you know, we're we're seeing we're seeing um we're seeing the 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 measures taken. I mean, this is what scares me in a sense, like travel restrictions, you know, contact tracing, right. mass surveillance escalation. This is where I agree with you that it's what we're seeing is biopolitics. This is yeah, biopolitics. And, yeah, biocapitalism, as somebody said. And and it's terrifying because um, it is substituting, you know, I had a conversation with a friend who was here, um, actually sitting behind me right now, um, who's visiting and, and about the Castaneda books way back, right? Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and how the one, and I remember it too, that, that was 
so resonant and what the idea contained in it was this you can't go home you know because home has changed home is gone i mean i feel that when i go to la on a on a sort of trivial level but it's more about something with a much longer timeline okay. a much longer horizon backward and forward and um you know you think of the enlightenment and you think of the stuff that that launched and and this journey through logical positivism and and the industrial revolution and meanwhile there's manifest destiny and there's colonialism and there's just extraordinary things that that are you know the worst the worst aspects of 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 humans and in the, you know, and there were some real triumphs and great aspects of humans, but we have arrived at a place now where, where these restrictions, all the new kind of, you know, biocapitalism is, is in the service, it seems to me, first and foremost, of stopping, stopping people from from shedding those rote behavioral ticks, you know, that unconscious, they don't want you to take the mask off. They don't want you. And so now literally there's an allegory for you, you know, people wearing masks, don't take them off. You'll be fine. It's very funny to me. Um, but, but it's, it's the biocapitalism is about, is about stopping everything we're talking about, it well, seems it, to me. But it's very, it is very interesting, right? Because you, all I would say is that you need, if you're gonna talk about biocapitalism, you have to include uh, all social media is a, is a biocapital machine, including, and of course, including Zoom, which is the media yes. that you and I are exchanging these stories. So it's, you know, no, it's, which is it's, really is terrifying, you know, I have to say. Well, and, and, and at the same time, you know, this is where you see, uh, you see not only is there biocapital, but there's also a, a, this other um, capacity for connectivity that is in a strange, you know, this is this strange kind of other side where, you know, if this is why I want to focus always on this sort of, you know, the near enemy of the neoliberal uh, yeah. episteme <clears throat> and say, well, if we get rid of that, all of this capacity for connection is potentially has this other, can, you know, these other capacities can be actualized, let's say. Well, the, the great, the great, you know, you're talking, you know, like Zoom, yes, we're trying to actualize something different that chips away at this, this, um, you know, uh, edifice of repression and, and, and um, occupation, sort of psychological occupation. And that's aesthetic resistance. That's why that yes. makes sense to me, you know, yeah. is that the, it, the, the extraordinary importance of text, but, and learning to actually read text. And my God, people can't read. I'm just, you know, people are innumerate. People are, are terrified and have this, you know, I mean, we can go on and on and on the shaky self image that's based on this and this and anyway, and a shopping, you know, a mind that is constantly shopping for a new self and et cetera. But aesthetic resistance means 
you know, stepping back and, and trying to actually hear what you're saying, what you're writing. And, um, well, this is where, and, uh, and to slow, and there's also some part of being slow in, I feel like people hurry over of course, the moment. You know, yeah. Go so, on. So look, look, this is where you get to this place for me of, all right, you know, let's bring it back to this issue of betise of, you know, this embodied knowing that is close to the, you know, it's close to the body. It's, it's close to the animal aspect. You know, it's, it's, you know, and if you look at, at Sam Beckett's, if you look at Samuel Beckett's work and you look at, you know, you've heard me go through this before of, you know, you go from ham in Endgame to Max in the homecoming to, you know, the television show, Tell Death right, to right. Part, to Archie Bunker in, uh, you know, All in the Family. And then, of course, you're a half a step from both Homer Simpson and Donald motherfucking Trump. Right. And and it's like, you know, this is how uh, so this is how Beckett's kind of particular kind of irony and, and understanding propagated forward through the world having its transformational impact, not through people directly understanding Beckett, but through this this you know this rhizomatic propagation of his of his anti-patriarchal point of view and then you 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 realize the hysteria of you know the regime of identity in the form of donald trump that it's this hysterical psychotic well you're seeing of, yeah you're you know, seeing. and it's like well what happens after we get rid of this fucking shit and not just him but also the republican party and the part of the Democratic Party that's always been pretty much just uh, completely unique, you know, I mean, what happens if the whole thing topples over? What happens then? Well, okay, so maybe, you know, in other words, the story isn't over yet. Let's see where things go. Yeah. Well, we, I was having a discussion with somebody today, and I guess we're probably gonna have to wrap up here, but because this has been great. But I was discussing like, the US military. I said, you know, oh, there's five hundred, you know, five billion dollars a day. They have nine hundred bases around the world. Nobody asks exactly why you have those bases. You know, what, what, you protect? Who are you protecting? Because pretty much nobody wants you there. So you see these deformations, this disfigurement of the oh. human. I mean, you see it in, you know, to be a little trite about it but i mean you see it in the the physical presence of trump or the physical presence of kissinger you know or any of these people who have who are these dorian gray um you well, know i, I um, would want to come back and in and in in, in come back to your mention of castaneda and i would want to talk about the nature of the sorcerer as a as a as a figure you know, that you see yep. sorcerer that you find in Deleuze and Guattari and what that means exactly, yep. you know, and then I would want to talk about certain non-Western traditions, shaman, sh shamanic traditions, yeah. shamanic points of view from all the different cultures in the world. And of course, my own access to that, which comes through, you know, the, the sort of quasi um, shamanistic dimension of Tibetan Buddhism that's so interesting to me. And also oh, Kashmiri yeah. Shaivism, you know the, the the tantric Shaivism of Kashmir. All those well, th all those systems of thought are extremely potent and interesting to me. 
Absolutely. And, and see, and all of that stuff, all of that stuff is connected to, to in a broad sense, theater, that everything is theater. You bet. Theater is before everything and theater is after everything. All right. So we have to do another one of these. There's no question. <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah. Oh, thank you, man. Um, thanks, Guy. Uh, right. I will talk to you soon. And, um, and we will do another one because this was just terrific. Thank you. All right. Thank you, John. See you All right, later. man. Later. Bye.